Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content director at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, the guys will be discussing Deuteronomy chapter 16, specifically looking at the Passover, the Feast of Weeks, and the Feast of Booths. We wanted to let you know about an upcoming online course at Theopolis on Jane Austen. This course will be from September 9th through October 14th on Saturdays from 1 to 3 Central. It'll be taught by Lita Sundet, and over these six weeks, students will cover Mansfield Park and Emma. As Dr. Lightheart likes to say, real men read Austin. So head to that link down there in the show notes or head to the homepage of our website, theopolisinstitute.com. Scroll to the bottom there where we have our upcoming events and click on that course to register. As always, we hope that you enjoy this time of teaching and we want to thank you so much for listening. And here are Peter Lightheart, Alistair Roberts, James B. John, and Jeff Myers discussing Deuteronomy 16. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lightheart, and I'm here today with Jeff Myers, Alistair Roberts, and James B. John. Brian Motes is um, recording, and he'll be editing and making everything available. This is the 666th episode of the Theopolis Podcast. We have reached uh, our apocalyptic moment in the Theopolis Podcast. The Antichrist, the Beast, is going to be revealed on this program as we enter into the 666th episode. In fact, that's not the case, uh, but this is the 666th episode, but this is not an apocalyptic episode. And we already know who the who the beast is. We, we've identified him in our writings on Revelation, which you can consult at your leisure. Uh, instead of an apocalyptic episode, we're gonna be talking again about the De- book of Deuteronomy. We're roughly halfway through the book of Deuteronomy, uh, and we've been looking at the section of Deuteronomy that's organized according to the Ten Words. The Ten Commandments are uh, repeated in Deuteronomy 5 uh, in a slightly different form than they appear in Exodus, but that repetition of the Ten Words sets up the following 20 or so chapters of Deuteronomy. So chapters 5, roughly 5 or 6 through chapter 26 are organized according to the Ten Words. Uh, And we are currently in the middle of a section that has to do with the fourth commandment, which is the Sabbath commandment. Uh, In the last couple of episodes, we looked at chapter 15, and that was concerned with kind of the social dimensions of Sabbath keeping, the remission of debts, that is a granting of rest and relief to those who are indebted. Uh, It's a reenactment, as it were, of Exodus, uh, instead of uh, holding people under thrall by by maintaining their indebtedness, instead of being like Pharaoh, Israelites are supposed to be like Yahweh and are supposed to free people from slavery, free people from indebtedness, uh, and uh, send them out with, uh, with goods so that they can make a fresh start. Uh, we were looking at those, uh, those rules in the uh, previous couple of episodes. This week, we're going to uh, cover some more conventional uh, Sabbath-related topics. In chapter 16 of Deuteronomy, verses 1 through 17, gives us a sketch of the the liturgical calendar of Israel. Uh, this is the third time that the, these uh, these feasts are enumerated. They're enumerated first of all in Exodus, uh, in the chapters in chapter 23, following the giving of the ten words. There's a brief sketch of the of the main feasts of Israelite calendar. There's a much more elaborate 
description of the feasts in Leviticus 23, there are seven different feasts that are laid out. Uh, and then we come to uh, Deuteronomy 16, and Deuteronomy 16 outlines three major feasts. These are the, the feasts that Israelite men were, were required to attend at the central sanctuary. That is Passover, the Feast of Weeks, which is also called Pentecost, the Feast of Booths, also called the Feast of Tabernacles, which is also called the Feast of Ingathering. Those three feasts were the preeminent feasts, and they're the ones that Israelite men had to had to attend. And those are the ones that Deuteronomy 16 covers. Those are summarized in verse 16 of this chapter. Those are laid out in the requirement that men, um, the men at least, attend is uh, is given there. I, I should say parenthetically, that doesn't mean that women couldn't attend. From the early chapters of Samuel, it seems that when when uh, Elkanah went to uh, Shiloh for a feast, he took his two wives with him because Hannah and Peninnah are both with him there. Uh, that was probably a common thing. It would be a family trip. It would be a family vacation, as it were. Uh, and uh, Israelite men would take their take their families and not go by themselves and leave their wives behind. Their wives were welcome, but they weren't required. Uh, one thing before I describe some of the layers of this calendar, I think it's interesting that the Sabbath rules in Deuteronomy expand beyond the weekly Sabbath. There's a tradition within, especially within the Reformed churches, within Protestantism, that holds that the Christian Sabbath is the one uh, one day that uh, Christians observe any other any other acknowledgement of uh, any kind of uh, Christian calendar, any kind of liturgical calendar is is rejected, even to the point where, in in some sectors of the Reformed churches, uh, it's it's considered a sin to celebrate Easter or Christmas as a separate as a separate uh, feast day, because the Sabbath is one feast day, but in Deuteronomy. The Sabbath law includes the other feasts. So the Sabbath, the Sabbath law ex- expands from a weekly pattern of time of marking time to uh, an annual pattern of marking time. So it seems natural that the church has followed the same uh, the same kind of sequence. The, uh, the church has met historically on the first day of the week, but the church also developed a more or less elaborate liturgical calendar that that covered the entire year. Uh, and that seems to fit the Deuteronomic pattern. That is, in fact, the way that Sabbath is kept in Deuteronomy. Sabbath is not kept simply by keeping the weekly Sabbath, but it's also kept by coming to these other feasts. Uh, so that sheds some light on those debates about uh, Sabbath keeping. The liturgical calendar that we have in Deuteronomy 16, I think it has several different layers to it. A couple of these are fairly obvious, especially if you compare this to the other passages that talk about Israel's calendar. Uh, there's an agricultural pattern going on. Passover occurs at the beginning of, in the spring, uh, when uh, you have the first buds coming out. You don't have a harvest yet, but it's the beginning of the budding of of grain and of wheat and barley. Uh, When you get to Feast of Weeks, then the text here talks about the sickle being put into the standing grain, verse 9. So there's a beginning of a harvest, but it's not a complete harvest yet. And then when you get to the Feast of Booths, there's a full harvest, not only of wheat, but also of wine. Uh, and so you you run through the whole whole agricultural calendars. You move from basically the springtime to the fall. That's the the seven seven or so the seven months of the Israelite liturgical calendar follow the agricultural calendar. Uh, another layer on top of that is the uh, the liturgical calendar reenacts and follows Israel's history. So Passover Passover and unleavened bread, of course, reenact and are commemorations of the deliverance from Egypt. With the Feast of Weeks, it's not identified here, 
uh, with uh, Sinai, but it, in fact is the time when Israel came to Sinai. It came to Sinai at Pentecost in the third month, which is when the Feast of Weeks takes place. So it's a celebration of giving the law. And then, uh, again, not here in Deuteronomy, but elsewhere, we're told that the Feast of Booths is celebrated to reenact and to commemorate Israel's uh, time of living in booths or tents as they went through the wilderness. So you have a Passover, Sinai, wilderness sequence that, that Israel runs through the entire, every, uh, every year. They're, they're running through the entire history of, uh, of redemption. The, the more implicit one that I think is, is intriguing is there does seem to be a creation pattern going on here. There's a hint of that in the fact that the word seven is repeatedly used, it's used seven times in the chapter. The word week in uh, in Hebrew is built on the same on the same uh, word. Uh, unleavened bread is described in terms of a six plus one pattern that uh, that again replicates the creation. And I think if you look at the three feasts, they kind of line up to different days of creation. So the, the uh, Passover is a nighttime festival. They slaughter the p- Passover animal at night. And then the Passover per se is done the next morning, uh, and then they continue with the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So that's a day one kind of thing, darkness leading to light. Day three, or, or the the third month celebration of the Feast of Weeks, the mark that that's beginning is the, that you can put the sickle into the standing grain, so grain has come up from the land. That's a day three connection with the creation week. Uh, and then the wine that's associated with the Feast of Booths, which occurs in the seventh month, is associated throughout the scripture with Sabbath keeping and with enthronement and with rest. So the Passover weeks, booths, sequence, they match up to the first, the third, and the seventh day of the creation week. So in addition to Israel going through its own history each year, kind of reenacting its entire history and commemorating its entire history, uh, it's also kind of going through a creation sequence and Israel is being renewed and recreated uh, and re-entering into proper engagement with the creation and with the creator as they go through this calendar every year. It's kind of, the, I think that we can see the same principles at work in the in the Christian calendar as it developed historically. Uh, the Christian calendar begins with Advent uh, late in the year, it begins with the coming of Christ. It uh, commemorates uh, the birth of Christ, the manifestation of Christ during Epiphany, the sufferings of Christ during Lent, the death of Christ, the sufferings and death of Christ during Holy Week, the resurrection of Christ, his ascension, and his gift of the Spirit. That's the basically half year of the Christian calendar. You're running through the basic acts of redemption that occurred in Christ. Uh, and it's also a creation sequence because Jesus is renewing the world by his death and resurrection and the gift of the Spirit. So those the theology that's going on behind this Israelite calendar, I think, also applies to the Christian calendar. Quick question, if I might. Um, see, it seems to me that here in um, Deuteronomy 16 there's a kind of flexibility to the way these feasts are anchored to the um actually to the calendar so um, where are we in verse eight and nine or well, nine particularly that there is a seven weeks that leads up to the feast of weeks and it begins from the time the sickle is first put to the standing grain and then in um verse 13 for the feast of booths it, you keep it when you have gathered in the produce from your threshing floor. So it seems that it's anchored to just when particular things take place in in the world of nature. In Leviticus 23, that's then made a bit more exact, tied to the calendar more specifically. So the Feast of Weeks, I mean, verse 
15 now, count seven full weeks from the day after the Sabbath, from the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave. And then, of course, you get the 15th day of the seventh month specified for booths or tabernacles. Um, so, yeah, I'd be, I'd be intrigued to know kind of what, what if you think that's a valid um, uh, difference to point out and, and what you make of it. It does seem like there's a different different kind of reckoning that's going on. And the point you're making is that uh, in Leviticus, the subsequent feasts are dated by reference to previous feasts. And in Deuteronomy, the linkage is more with what's happening in the agricultural year. That's that's the basic that's the basic difference you're pointing to. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I mean, I've wondered in some ways if there's um, a different unifying principle here. So um, obviously, some of this is going to um, come down to whether we think that these commandments that are related to the place the Lord your God will choose began later than other commandments. But I mean, but if we do grant that, I've wondered if in Leviticus, there is an idea of people unified by time. So you could have all of Israel observing feasts in different places, but unified by the calendar. And here, I wonder if the calendar becomes more flexible, because we're entering a regime where people are unified more by place and so these feasts there's a flexibility perhaps you know perhaps harvests come uh to fruition more quickly in the north of israel than in the south or something so there could be time flexibility but everyone is coming to the central location yeah that, that was as you were as you were uh talking about the differences that that's one of the things that occurred to me that uh perhaps we're looking at as as we are at a number of pla- a number of points we're looking at the difference between a calendar that's instituted for Israel during their time in the wilderness, which would be Leviticus. And for 40 years, they keep that calendar, which is internally uh, connected and not connected to the agricultural year. They're not settled in a place where they're actually going through an agricultural year, obviously. Uh, and then they go into the land and then then the, the same feasts get pegged to different phenomena that have to, more to do with the land. So that is something that we see in, um, we've already seen that in Deuteronomy, where Deuteronomy changes certain rules about, uh, for example, what uh, where where uh, animals can be slaughtered. They don't have to be taken to the sanctuary and don't have to be slaughtered as peace offerings, as they were in the wilderness. Once you enter the land, then you can have butchering done anywhere in the land, as long as you pour out the blood on the ground. So there, there, there are adjustments like that are being made. But my my question, James, I I wasn't clear on what you were saying toward the end. Uh, if you do have the sickle going to the standing grain at different times in different parts of Israel, I wasn't clear what you were saying about the coordination of the feasts. Because if they're if they're counting from different starting points, then it would seem like they'd be the feast of weeks would occur at different times in different parts of the uh, the land. Is that what you were suggesting? Yeah, that's what I'm suggesting. I'm I'm, I'm suggesting that. Um, it would be observed at different times, but what would unite the people would be it would be observed at the same place um, because everyone would be coming to the temple um, to observe it. And um, I mean, I, I would be um, inclined to extend the notion of the wilderness years all the way up until the building of the temple. And um, my thinking there would be when the Lord says, you know, for a long time I was 
walking in a tent um, effectively. And um, is this when he's speaking to David? He, he goes on to say, I didn't prompt any of the judges to establish a, a, establish a place for me to put my name. And so I'm kind of, I'm inclined to tie these um, instructions that are to do with the place the Lord your God will choose um, to the temple era. Yeah, that's that's interesting. I, again, I, I'm not sure I'm getting the point. If so, uh, what that means is that you could have well, Passover is fixed. That's uh, in the month of Abib, yeah, uh, and given a certain time. But then the other ones are more flexible, and that would mean that you'd have maybe a month and a half period during which people from different parts of the land are showing up at the central sanctuary for feasts. Is that is that what yeah. you're envisioning? Yeah. Yeah, that's oh, what I mean. Oh, yeah, very interesting. I I haven't ever thought of that uh, possibility before, and that would that would make Passover stand out as as the one unified linchpin feast that everyone would be at at the same time, and then the other ones would be more flexible. You still could have the rule uh, of verse eighteen in force: your males shall appear before the Lord at the place that He chooses three times a year but they don't necessarily all come simultaneously. Yeah, I, I, I think so. I mean, there's obviously some flexibility built into the Passover anyway, isn't there? In, in that if you're unclean, then you can observe it in the second month. Um, so right. that there is sort of some aspect of that. And I've also wondered if some of the things that we covered in chapter 15 are staggered as well, because sorry, this is going back a, a week now, but they the slave works for six years and then is released on the seventh, and so it seems to me that then you'd, you'd have this sort of staggered release of slaves as well, because when they get released depends on when when they start. Of course, it's also possible that this is a small area; it's not a it's not a large territory. That when sickles start going in to harvest the grain. There's communication. Of course, there's no telephones or anything like that, but runners and um, others, you know, it, it's time. Let's go up for the feast. That would make the the timing relative to the beginning of the harvest, but I could see how everyone could get together and start toward um, the tabernacle together, and it wouldn't so much be staggered uh, because there'd be communication between the tribes and cities and towns in Israel. Um, the other thing uh, uh, fascinates me about this when I read these um, regulations again about these feasts is how much is left unsaid. I mean, so you're going to go to keep the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread for seven days. And you're told that you don't eat leavened bread, and you're told to sacrifice the Passover sacrifice and eat it. But what else are you doing for seven days? <laughs> um, what there? There's so much more that's going to be going on at these festivals that is not regulated. Uh, it's not explicitly stated. So you're you're going up there basically to rejoice to have a party basically with your family and friends, but uh, surely there's going to be some organized activities and other sorts of things 
Um, and we just don't know about that. You're, we're given the outline. We're given the bare bones of skeletal kind of structure. structure. But um, it's fascinating just to think of what else goes on. What are they doing? Are, are, is there some reading of uh, the scriptures that they have about, um, you know, you know what we what we would call Genesis, or, or maybe some uh, things that Moses has written down about the Exodus. Um, so, what's going on in these um, in these festivals is is kind of a fascinating idea. It's also just a, a reminder that I mean, we get tend to get really uh, I don't know how to say this. Uh, people get upset. Modern people that all these details and about regulations and sacrifices and food laws and stuff. And yet when you start really thinking about it, there's, they're pretty skeletal. They're not, they're not all that detailed. Um, They give you basic outlines of, of where to go, what to do, uh, but how all of this gets done and what actually is experienced by people. um, There's, there's a whole lot of flexibility here. And even beyond the explicit um, treatment that we have, there are allowances for situations where that cannot be applied. For instance, in Numbers chapter 9, when there are people who are ceremonially unclean and can't celebrate the Passover at the appointed time, there's a second Passover set up that they can celebrate. And so it seems to me that um, in addition to the point that Jeff was making about just the latitude for um actually applying um these laws that there are many different ways that you could flesh out the skeletal structure that he commented commented upon you also have allowances for situations where those structures can't be applied and there's a sense just of you use your reason you use your um biblical understanding to think about what's fitting in these circumstances it's not all going to be dictated for you and so we do have a situation where the law does give us very clear instructions for many things and the case law in many ways is filling that out and applying it to specific situations but the fact that the case law is not a comprehensive um legislation body of legislation highlights the fact that this is something that judges, individual Israelites and their families would need to use a biblical, a biblically informed understanding to apply in practice. And there would be quite a lot of latitude for different ways of um, going about things as a society and then even as individual families and persons. Yeah, that's a great point. And I think, uh, I mean, it, it seems like particularly... Uh... A question comes up with Passover, which is uh, offered, sacrificed in the evening. Verse four: None of the flesh shall be sacrificed in the evening. The first day shall remain overnight until morning. So, uh, the Passover festival per se is taking place as the first Passover did through the course of a night. And when you come out the other end of that, then you don't you're not to have any any of the meat left. You continue a feast. So there must be additional sacrifices being offered. But the Passover per se is done, so that's a that's quite it that could be quite a dramatic, uh, quite a dramatic event that you have uh, you have a, a nighttime feast uh, that's running through until morning. That's that's the that's the thing I was referring to with the uh, creation reference. But it it does raise Jeff's question: what are, what are they doing other than that? 
clearly they're not eating and drinking all night. So there must be some other things that they're that they're involved with. And they're commanded to rejoice, to have joy, to enjoy themselves. So as Elser said, applying, you know, kind of biblical wisdom to this, what's appropriate for this assembly, this holy convocation. Well, what are we going to do that encourages joyful community relations, joyful, a joyful time? Is there going to be singing? Is there going to be dancing? Is there going to be, there's obviously going to be eating. Um, and uh, <laughs> this is something uh, that I noticed last time when we were going through uh, Deuteronomy 14 is, and Jim Jordan is, I remember just, you know, three decades ago, him mentioning the fact that Leviticus 23 and Deuteronomy 16 and all these feasts that the Lord institutes feasts and not fast. There's, you know, there's one fast in their festival calendar, but it's a festival calendar. I remember him talking about that and always, always since then, just reflecting on it. And I noticed last time in Deuteronomy 14, when they tithe and they're to eat the tithe of their grain and their wine and their oil, and also the firstborn, their herd and flock. So they got they got bread, they got wine, they got oil, uh, they've got meat. Um, and then then the point is in verse twenty three of chapter fourteen that you may learn to fear Yahweh your God always. So there's a pedagogy here, which is fascinating: is that you learn to fear God at a feast, at a table, eating. Um, and that is so counter to so many, unfortunately, so many religious traditions, but also even lots, a lot of traditions in the Christian church. Whereas, you know, you're supposed to learn to fear God when you afflict yourself or when you are, when you suffer or when you're made to suffer. And, you know, you know you learn how great and terrible God is by not eating, by uh, taking cold showers, by flogging yourself or flogging someone else or, some, you know, all that kind of uh, afflicting stuff. But here, um, the whole point is to rejoice. And whatever they're doing, uh, that is supposed to inculcate the fear of Yahweh. Um, and and that, again, I think in, in, in many ways from people I talk to, um uh, in western eastern christianity too it seems to be counterintuitive we we haven't developed that even we even turn the lord's supper into a time of silent you know personal soul searching afflicting ourselves for our sins i remember i had an elder tell me one time when i when i was changing the way we did the supper to make it a, more communal and more more, more happy to be honest he said well you know uh, I, I i i was told that i'm supposed to think about my sins i close my eyes and 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 think about my sins during the supper and i said wait a minute you know your sins are forgiven <laughs> that already happened at the beginning of the service that's not what this is this is about this is a joyful happy kind of communal meal with jesus where you know we drink wine and, and bread and and give thanks. We give thanks. Um, so um, I, I think that's all rooted in, you know, biblical festival theology. And sometimes that's missing in our circles. 
one thing I'd be interested to hear guys' thoughts upon is why within the Pentateuch we have material related to something like the Passover discussed in many different places, none of them being a comprehensive treatment of the Passover, but together giving a sense of what the Passover is and how it's to be celebrated. So, for instance, we have laws concerning the sacrifices for the Passover in Numbers 29. We have laws concerning an alternative Passover for those who are unclean in Numbers 9. We have the laws of the feasts in Leviticus 23. We have laws concerning or the three pilgrimage feasts in Exodus 23. We have the institution of the Passover in Exodus 12, and then we have the material here in Deuteronomy 16. And it seems if we were producing this material, we'd have it all in one space and we'd have a clearly organized body of material related to the Passover, and then you'd have the other feasts after that. And every single aspect would be gathered together. And yet it's dispersed. So my initial thought would be that by having it dispersed, we're um, taught to approach the Passover from many different perspectives and in many different connections, and to view it from those di- viewing it from those different angles to have a more three dimensional portrait of what the Passover is about. That's my instinctive judgment, but I'd be curious to hear any impressions that you might have. That sounds right to me, Alistair, that because um, they, they occur in different kinds of contexts. Leviticus 23 uh, is not, um, that's not in the same kind of Sabbath, Sabbath context that uh, Deuteronomy 16 is. Part of it too, uh, just to go back to something that James and I were talking about, I think there's, there's obviously a sequence uh, and the, What's done at at particular festivals is different depending on where in Israel's history we're looking at it. So the first Passover in, recounted in Exodus 12 is unique in that, in, in one respect, it's unique in that it's a, it's a household event or it's a household and neighbors. But it's not, there's no central sanctuary, so there's no gathering to a central sanctuary. There's no, there's no tabernacle. Leviticus 23, the rules are given to Israel while they're in the wilderness and then Deuteronomy in the land. So, and I suspect that something like uh, Numbers twenty and twenty nine, the schedule of sacrifices, schedule of sacrifices for different feasts, are presuming that Israel is planted in the land and they're producing herds and flocks and so on. So, I think there's a there's a kind of historical development of the feasts that are going in there, which is which is part of the theology of the feast. In order to understand what Passover is, we can't just we can't isolate one one particular passage about it. And not merely look at it from different facets, as you're saying. I think that's part of it, but also see that there's a there is a development. There's a kind there's a kind of maturation of the feast as Israel matures. Yeah, that that feels very right to me for for whatever it's worth. I mean, we've surely got similar things going on elsewhere in Scripture. I mean, we could think about um, the Gospels or 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 the, or the cross, for that matter, and, and the way in which the um, deliverance which takes place at the cross has so many facets to it whether we're thinking about it from um this perspective of um propitiation and and the turning away of god's wrath or uh, christ's triumph over his enemies and him leading them away captive and and so on and it just feels that we've got something very similar with um the the 
pass over it itself. I mean, Deuteronomy 16 is, is very much how it looks within the context of um, Israel and to the people who observe it as part of their yearly ritual, as opposed to, well, for instance, um, how it looks for the priests and how the sacrifices offered um, at the time of the Passover um, differ from and share similarities with the rest of the Levitical sacrifices. And, and so, um, it, it, yeah, it feels that you've got though that multiplicity of, um, of perspectives, as well as obviously the historical account of the Passover itself, where kind of other things are emphasised, the way it's um, eaten in haste and, and, and so forth. I wanted to return to something Jeff said, and uh, uh, Jeff was emphasizing the the festivity, the joy of these feasts, which is highlighted specifically in the Feast of Weeks and the Feast of Booths. But it, it's pretty common for commentators to note uh, a different, what seems to be a somewhat different atmosphere for the Passover. Uh, there's no uh, reference to eating and rejoicing before the Lord as there is with the other feasts. This The bread that they're eating is the bread of affliction because they came out of, uh, as James just said, they came out of Egypt in haste. And unleavened bread, we probably need to talk about what, what unleavened bread is and what uh, what it symbolizes. But um, I wonder if the rest of you, that does seem to me right, that the Passover is uh, given a somewhat different coloring than the other feasts. But I wonder if, uh, if the rest of you think that that's correct. I mean, the, the, the mention of affliction certainly does feel significant to me, yeah. Um, I don't know. So much more to add, but yeah, and I guess the, uh, to just pile on that point, it's it's not that uh, Israel is remembering affliction that they once experienced, but rather they're eating the unleavened bread, which is the bread of affliction. So they're they're eating the same bread that was associated with their uh, their hasty departure from Egypt. So uh, they're eating it in the present. So it's not just it's not just uh, something that they're looking at from from the distance of time. So yeah, yeah, bread of affliction seems to seems to reinforce that a different emotional coloring. Yeah, that seems to be right. Um, and at the same time, they are eating uh, the meat from the Passover sacrifice, verse seven. So it's not as if it's a total fast, but it is it is designed to help them remember where they were and what they came from i think that's right and that's the leaven of egypt which is being left behind which should they should not be tempted with to return to egypt um, and egypt's system egypt's way of life egyptian tyranny egyptian master slave relations and and all of that they've left that behind and they and um they had a new life i think Maybe that's where you were going when you're talking about the meaning of unleavened bread, Peter. Yeah, yeah, right. Well, I guess one other one other aspect of that, uh, and maybe maybe there's a, even within the the Passover unleavened bread that sequence, which is considered as as kind of a unified feast here. Maybe even there you have a sequence from a kind of sobriety to more joyous festivity. We're not told much about the feast of unleavened bread except that it, it's the bread of affliction. But it's the Passover is the night of their deliverance. So it's a nighttime feast, and then the day dawns, and they continue the feast of unleavened bread when the day dawns. 
that movement from darkness to light might signal a different kind of um, uh, a different kind of tenor as they move out of Passover per se. The other thing I want to the other thing that uh, it's worth highlighting. Uh, I was uh, thinking about. I'm interested, Jeff, in getting your feedback on this because I'm not sure I'm remembering it properly. But I seem to remember various liturgical scholars. Um, uh, I think that uh, Louis Bouillet, maybe Alexander Schmemann, and others are hostile to the idea of liturgical reenactment, that what we're doing in the liturgy is redoing something that has happened in the past. Instead, what we're doing is we're um, uh, celebrating a past event you know, we're not reenacting the cross at the Lord's Supper, but we're celebrating the cross as an accomplished fact. And uh, so there's a joy a joy in it that wouldn't be there if we were reenacting the cross. So, but uh, there, there does seem to be a strong element of reenactment, not only with the Passover here, with the, the bread of affliction that they're eating, they're doing it, they're slaughtering the animal at the same time that they slaughtered the animal in the very first Passover. They're keeping seven days of unleavened bread, which is what they did when in the first Passover. So the differences between the first Passover and the and the uh, and the repeated Passover, but uh, there are commonalities, and the fact that elsewhere uh, during the Feast of Booze, people are said to to live in tents, reenacting the the tents that they uh, the they're wandering through the wilderness. It does seem like reenactment is part of it, part of what's happening here. The part of the commemoration is redoing things that were done in the past. So I, I don't I don't know if I'm if I'm remembering those those liturgical comments correctly, Jeff, maybe you can, you can illuminate me if I've gotten something wrong there. <laughs> well, how in the world would you celebrate the supper communion, the Eucharist without some aspect of reenactment, not, not so much um, reenacting the cross and the death of Jesus. Um, you get that sometimes with uh, kind of popular celebrations of the supper where, for example, when the bread is broken, Jesus took bread and broke it and gave it to his disciples. Um, it, the the idea that the fraction there somehow is, the, you know, a, a reenactment of the death of Jesus, his body, instead of saying, for example, instead of pastor saying his body is given, this is his this is the body of Christ given for you. You say something like, this is the body of Christ broken for you. And so the idea get the, the idea that people have is somehow that what we've done here by breaking the bread and pouring out the wine is that we're reenacting the um, death of Jesus. When uh, I, and if I remember right, the uh, what, what we want to do is not so much reenact those things as to, uh, bring bring the benefits of what Jesus has done forward um so um as if as if you're taking the meat from the altar and you're feeding people with it um and uh, so Jesus has already been uh already given himself already died already already went to the grave already uh resurrected and transfigured and ascended into the cloudy presence of of yahweh now he gives his life-giving glorified body and blood for us to eat and drink at the table and and but yet at the same time you know you begin every supper with in the night he was betrayed 
Jesus took bread and he gave thanks for it. So you know, there, there's, there's this emphasis on the importance of the history and what happened and how that then is brought forward to us. The benefits are brought forward to us. And maybe there's something like that going on with the Passover too. It's not so much like they're, it's not a historical reenactment ceremony in one in one sense because they're you know they're not going to be dressing up like slaves and all that kind of stuff, um, but yet it does it does reenact something so that they can teach their children about what happened so they can carry on the understanding that this is the this is who they are this is our identity this is where we came from uh, this is what the Lord has done for us. I wonder if there's a helpful distinction here to be made between um, reenactment in order to continue the accomplishment of something and reenactment in order to remember something. So, I mean, as you're saying, Jeff, the Passover, I mean, you can reenact it in a certain sense, but you don't need to. I mean, you're free from Egypt anyway, you know, and and so um, that's that's an ongoing reality which the re reenactment of it merely remembers rather than accomplishes now consider by contrast something like the day of atonement like there in the ritual um the enactment of it is actually part of its accomplishment you know every year the tabernacle has built up more sin sin has been and uncleanness has been brought to it from all over Israel as unclean people have streamed up. And each year, those sins then need to be taken away. And you're not actually remembering something that is now done and is permanently the case, e.g. the cleanness of the tabernacle, because it's, it's not permanently permanently clean. It gets defiled as the year um, goes on. And so there you've got kind of reenactment in order to accomplish something. And that then seems to get back to your um discussion of, of breaking bread because there is it's very explicit isn't it in Hebrews 9 and 10 that what's going on there is reenactment in order to remember something um which is done once and the effects of which are totally permanent and there it's explicitly contrasted isn't it with the day of atonement where there is this remembrance of sin and the the fact that the Day of Atonement is even scheduled in the law as kind of as a calendrical event, almost bespeaks its insufficiency because there's there's no end point to it. It's just ingrained in this um, calendar on the assumption that every year sin will continue and will need to be um, uh, will, will will be need to be removed. And and there again, it then seems important that when you come together to break bread is precisely not to remember sin and and to kind of make yourself um afflicted in in certain ways you know that, that's exactly what it's not doing according to hebrews 10 it's been a while since i read him on the subject but i wonder whether part of what shmeman and others are getting at is the difference between a christian celebration or a jewish celebration of the Passover, a Christian celebration of the sacraments, and a sort of mystery cult where you're reenacting a myth that has a mystical efficacy as it's reenacted in this constant way. Um, whereas the events of the Passover, the events of the um, Last Supper, 
are historical events. And so our relationship with them in the celebration of the sacraments or the celebration of the Passover is of a different kind, and so should not be conceived of in the manner of a, a mystery cult or um, some other understanding of ritual efficacy that loses sight of the specific once-for-all event that um, gives rise to these practices that um, memorialize and um, connect us with that event in some way, but are not um, bearing the spiritual energy of that event in the same way as one of those um, practices, the rituals of a mystery religion. Yeah, I suspect you're right that that's one of the one of the things they're contesting a um, conflation of Christian liturgy with mystery religion. As as uh, as y'all have been talking, I think that also what uh, what they're contesting is the notion that, uh, and I'm thinking Schmemann particularly talks about this: the habit of some Orthodox liturgical scholars to identify each move and moment and gesture of the liturgy with some moment in the history of the Gospels, for example. Uh, and so you, you have almost an allegorical kind of interpretation of the liturgy. I think that's that's part of what he's what, part of what he's contesting. But I, it's clear, as Jeff said at the beginning of his remarks, that uh, in both the Old Testament and in the New, there's an I- inevitable kind of reenactment that's part of it because we are doing what Jesus did at the Last Supper. So we're we're reenacting that Israel obviously is commanded to do what they did at the original Passover. So we move on to the other two feasts. We've spent most of our time here with the first of the three. Uh, we have the Feast of Weeks and the Feast of Booths. And these, even more than the Passover unleavened bread, leave a lot of uh, a lot to be to be worked out. At least there's a reference to a specific sacrifice that's done and the timing of that sacrifice in the Passover. But at the Feast of Weeks, uh, there's uh, no indication of the timing of that, how many are done. Uh, the accent is uh, entirely on uh, rejoicing together in the good things that God has given. So uh, Israel's festivity and generosity depends on the blessing of Yahweh. If Yahweh doesn't bless the land, if they don't have fruitfulness and productivity in the land, then they aren't going to have enough to share with um, with the, the poor and the servants and so on. That accent is on rejoicing in the, the good things that the Lord has given, and part of the rejoicing is sharing it. And both the, both the... Uh, account of the Feast of Weeks and the Feast of Booths include this list of different people who are supposed to be recipients of hospitality. So like the uh, Sabbath command itself, the Sabbath command puts an accent on the person who is receiving the command, taking rest, but also giving rest. And we have the same pattern with these festival laws. You celebrate the Feast of Weeks, verse 10, and then you shall rejoice before Yahweh your God with your son, daughter, male and female servant, Levite, stranger, orphan, widow, verse 11. So it's a command to rejoice before the Lord, but then also that joy gets extended and spills over to all these others that the Israelites have contact with. And this is something unique in the ancient Near East world, uh, that these that would be so explicit that a religious gathering festival would necessarily include these marginalized people or these people that are likely to be marginalized um that it's it's uh, inclusive like this and this obviously in verse 12 uh especially with the feast of weeks is grounded in the fact 
that the Israelites themselves were servants, slaves, marginalized. And that it seems like that constantly comes to the foreground in Deuteronomy is that they should not forget who they were and behave in ways that Yahweh behaved towards them. Behave like Yahweh behaved. Do what Yahweh did. Yahweh delivered you. Yahweh was gracious to you. Yahweh looked upon you when you were slave and gave you freedom. You should you should go and do likewise. So this is how your heavenly father acts. This is how you as, as a son in his image should act. That seems to me, and, and again, I'm not A&E kind of scholar at all. I mean, but I'm looking at commentaries and, and um, that seems like that's unique within the ancient world. Yeah, I think you'd have some examples from uh, other ancient cultures where you have like the king's, a king's generosity uh, that uh, is extended to uh, to a people at certain festival occasions. You know, certainly by the time you get to the Roman Empire, you have uh, bread and circuses are the are the are the tools for emperors to rule Rome to rule the empire. But um, I think you know, I, I think it's unusual, if not unique, that you have this this generosity and um, extension of extension of festivity and joy to the poorest of the poor from the people themselves and that that what you have is a is a a community of people who are who are included in that a community of people are all, all included in, in joy and the festival becomes a, a means for both uh symbolizing and deepening the the communal life of israel yeah in, in other cultures like you mentioned for rome for example yeah the emperor uh might um out of his largesse, you know, give all sorts of things to people in, in these festivals and whether it's food or the games or whatever. But that's always about a ruler consolidating his power. It's always has a political motive to it. There's no way to read these kinds of uh, regulations here and have it be a, a means to an e- a political end for tribal rulers or for an Israelite king. As you said, Peter, a few minutes ago, these are things that the people are supposed to do. And so there's really no political benefit at all, at least in terms of the power or advance of particular individuals in these communities. Yeah. Ancient Roman emperors uh, behave like benefactors in the sense that Jesus uses the word there. Uh, they're giving gifts, but they're giving gifts in order to win loyalty and in order to uh, secure future future paybacks. I have a theory about the way the chapter is organized. I want to get your thoughts on it. Uh, it starts from the observation that uh, you have a festival called the Feast of Booths, named in verse 13, and a summary of what they do in verses 13 through 15. Uh, but there's no in, there's no description of of why booths are mentioned. They're, uh, in, in other places, we learned that they're living in booths during that week, but we don't, we're not told that here. So that's one data point that got me puzzled. And then it seemed to me, uh, I, I mentioned at the beginning that there's a surface movement, Passover, Sinai, wilderness. That's the surface movement of the festivals. That's the, what Israel is uh, running through every year. But underneath the surface, it seems like there's almost a reverse temporal sequence. The Passover description reminds Israel about 
the day that they came out of Egypt in verse 3. So is that the, that's the, the day of Passover, the day of the Exodus, uh, the end of their slavery. The Feast of Weeks includes this instruction, verse 12, you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt and that you shall be careful to observe all these statutes. So that remembrance or commemoration is earlier than their deliverance from Egypt. So in Passover, they're commemorating the deliverance from Egypt. In weeks, they're remembering their slavery in Egypt. Uh, and that perhaps suggests that the booths are uh, referenced not to the, in, at least in, the, in this in this context, refers not to the booths that they're uh, that they that they stayed in while they went through the wilderness, but perhaps the patriarchal booth that, that they're moving back from Exodus from Egypt to slavery in Egypt, all the way back to the maybe the the settling in in Goshen or to the to the uh, patriarchs living in tents. So uh, while they're moving moving in chronological order through their deliverance. Possibly they're moving in reverse chronological order back to their origins, back to the times of the fathers, and they're they're cycling through both of those sequences every year. Thoughts, rebuttals? I would be inclined to see it in terms of the temporary dwellings in the wilderness, um, in part because there is uh, certainly in Leviticus there seems to be a symmetry established within the calendar. There's the first year, or there's the first month, and then the se- the seventh month. And the first feast is the Feast of Unleavened Bread, beginning with the one day of Passover. And then the last feast is in the seventh month, the Feast of Tabernacles, ending with the one day after Tabernacles. And so there's a sort of chiastic structure to the year with the first month mapping onto the seventh month, the first of the first half of the year and the first month of the second half of the year. And both of those events look back to... um, the earliest earliest departure from Egypt. So the unleavened bread is, of course, just as they left Egypt, they um, celebrated unleavened bread. And then also as they were leaving Egypt, they were dwelling for the first time in um, temporary dwellings as they had formerly been in um, more settled accommodation. And it was the first camping point was in Succoth. So I think that would be my association. They're dwelling in temporary accommodation in Succoth, and that's associated with the feast. There is a return to the beginning of the year, festal year, at the end of the festal year, where you cut off your food, the um, unleavened bread, and cutting off the cycle of leaven, and then you cut off your dwelling at the end of the year, which both of those events look back to the the first day of departure from Egypt. But here, the interesting thing is it's not pegged to the calendar in quite the same way. It's pegged to the agricultural um, cycles. Long ago, uh, Jim Jordan pointed out that um, the Bible doesn't give us any kind of abstracted theology or philosophy of time as it doesn't give us an abstracted kind of philosophy or theology of lots of different things. Uh, when it talks about time, it talks about kind of concrete time from Genesis one on, it's talking about days and activities on particular days. And it's setting up a week as a sequence. And that obviously is repeated in our ordinary time, but that seven day sequence becomes a pattern for lots of other things too. 
Uh, and Jim's point was partly that uh, instead of a philosophy of time, what the Bible gives us is uh, festival calendars. It gives us calendars. Uh, and that's the that's the uh, material. We want to call it the raw material for our reflections on what time is uh, and how time works. And um, one of the, I mean, some of the things we've been talking about already, I think, uh, highlight that the fact that we have this, the layers of uh, the calendar that I pointed to at the beginning, an agricultural, an agricultural calendar overlayered with the historical events of Israel, overlayered with references to the creation week. So that gives us a kind of uh, a beginning point for reflections on time. Another way this would work would be to think about how this, the sequences of festivals shape different events and sequences of events uh, in in the Bible. Obviously, they're shaping the, the historical events shape the calendar, but then the calendar becomes a template for thinking about the sequence of events at other times. And uh, one of the things that's going on in the book of Revelation, for example, is uh, a uh, it's running through the liturgical the liturgical calendar. The different different moments of in the uh, visions of John correspond to different moments and different festivals of Israel's calendar. There's a kind of Passover moment uh, at the beginning. There's a uh, first sheaf festival that's recounted in Leviticus 23 that involves the offering of a lamb. That's the appearance of the lamb in heaven in Revelation 5. Uh, there's uh, Toward the end, there's a harvest scene, which would be associated with the, the harvest festivals in gathering. There's a great Day of Atonement scene in Revelation 16, where seven chalices are poured out seven chalices of wine blood are poured out so you can you can plot out the book of revelation according to this according to this um, the festival calendar of leviticus and it suggests that the the whole of time has the the shape of a festival calendar so it's not just that we're not just israel's reenacting things that have taken place in the past but israel was also kind of re kind of anticipating a sequence of events that was going to govern the whole of human history and I guess that apart from those specifics, just the general idea I think is really valuable to for us to meditate on. Leave uh, you listeners to meditate on uh, how the uh, festival calendar gives us a template for thinking about sequences of time, the history of the church overall, the development and history of particular churches, how the how the temple calendar, uh, how the Israelite calendar gives us a template for thinking about the development of our own lives, going through a Passover to a a weeks to an ingathering, that that kind of movement as part of the sequence of a human life, or different segments of human life that have that kind of have that kind of pattern to them. But a, this is material for a vision, a biblical vision of time that is concrete and particular and rooted in uh, the events of Israel's history. Six six six. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.